So the story so far, the apostles, along with the 120 believers, have gathered together in the upper room. They've been praying. They've been waiting for the Holy Spirit that Jesus has promised to send. Then when the wind of God's Spirit blows and fire fell from heaven, it wasn't long before everything that's going on just spills out into the streets. Now bear in mind that Jerusalem is packed with people, mostly devoted Jews who come from every nation. And the sound of this rushing wind is so dramatic that a crowd stops to see what's going on. And then to their absolute surprise, the believers, they hear the believers speaking in their own languages, in their own dialects. Now, considering the multitude and the variety of nations present here, it just doesn't make sense. What on earth is going on here? But God is making a massive mission statement, not just to the disciples, but to everyone there. The world has gathered and they've heard the mighty works of God in their own languages And God was underscoring the universal scope of his unfolding plan. But the events of this magnitude demand an explanation. People are looking around confused. People don't know what's going on. In fact, some people are beginning to mock and to just make fun of everything that's happening there. But you know that even today, there's this polarizing nature to a move of the Spirit. If you read any even of the recent stories of revival or where God um, pulls out the Spirit in, in, in power, for every person whose life has been touched by the Spirit, there are many others who, will, are, who become very quick to condemn what's going on. Some people will take him seriously. Others will try to dismiss him. But there's no getting around the fact that it is the oddness of this situation that makes people stop, that makes them look, that makes them wait to hear what Paul's sermon has to say. The manifest presence of the Holy Spirit is always going to get people's attention. Even those who do not like what's going on can't ignore him. Should we need him to turn up in our day in such measure, in such manifest presence? This sermon, which we're going to get to, is probably one of the most astonishing sermons ever preached. But before we look at what is said, notice, first of all, who spoke to the Jerusalem crowd on that remarkable day. Yes, it's Peter again. I think we've already said that he has sort of taken up leadership of this early church. But again, Peter's past was certainly colorful. He's, he's not one he's particularly proud of. He was impulsive. He, he didn't always listen. In fact, he also denied Jesus. When Jesus needed him most, he denied him not once, but three times. However, Peter had felt sorrow for his sin. And after Christ's resurrection, he received the grace of restoration. This is what enabled him to preach the gospel. See, the gospel wasn't just something that he knew about. He had experienced it. This was personal to him. But what truly enabled him to be so bold was the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But actually, Peter's story 
is, or at least should be, the story of every Christian. Because the mercy of God can restore anyone, for God will give his spirit to anyone who comes to Jesus Christ. And now Peter is extending that same mercy to this crowd that have gathered together on that day of Pentecost. So let's have a look at what he said. In, very, in many ways, it is an explanation of what is going on. So Peter goes on to explain the what, the how, and the why of what has just happened. First of all, what happened? What's happened here? Verses 14 to 21. Let's just read what Peter says. So we're Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and the glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, the people needed an explanation. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. The whole thing seems a bit crazy to everybody. And Peter is very quick to give an explanation that this joyful worship of the believers was not a result of too much wine. It wasn't just their imagination. It was evidence of the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And Peter knows his audience. He's speaking to a crowd that is predominantly Jewish. So he begins by unpacking the Old Testament scriptures, which I guess the vast majority of the listeners knew very well. He takes them to Joel chapter 2. These words written 800 years before Pentecost. And Joel, of course, was speaking, he was prophesying into his own situation, into the Pacific situation in Israel at that time, where God's judgment had come in the form of a locust swarm to bring discipline on his people. But Joel's prophecy is also looking forward to a time that was to come. So if you read back in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, the section in Joel begins with these words. It says, and afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. When Peter picks this up, in Peter's, in Peter's speech in Acts chapter 2, he changes those opening words to, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So led by the spirit, Peter explains that this prophetic, this prophecy has been, has application for the church in his day, but also, I believe, in our day as well. He says, this is the same Holy Spirit that Joel talks about. And listen, guys, he's here. He's absolutely here. 
And as Joel goes on in this prophecy, he also says how there'll be these miraculous signs that will accomplish the pouring out of his spirit in the last days. Now, this would have been incredible for the Jews to hear because they thought God's spirit was only for a few select people. But right in front of their eyes are 120 people who are fellow Jews who are enjoying the blessing of the same spirit that empowered the heroes of the Old Testament like Moses and David and, and the prophets. This is the dawning of a new age the last days in which God would bring to completion the salvation of mankind. You see, Jesus has finished the great work of salvation and the coming of the Spirit was proof. And Peter wants his hearers and us to understand that the future has now arrived and that a whole new era has begun. But how do we know, how can we be sure that Pentecost was the beginning of the last days? After all, there are other possibilities. It could be speaking about events that actually still lie ahead of us, events that actually we're still looking for. Of course, it also could be some sort of general, apocalyptic, poetic description of the fact that creation will be unsettled until the coming of the great and the glorious day of the Lord. In fact, very similar to prophetic words like we find in Revelation. See, one day Jesus will return. He will usher in a new creation, the like of which we have never seen before. So could Peter just be talking about that? But when we look at the context in which this all sits, it almost certainly seems to be referring to the cross of Jesus. See, when the sun was turned to darkness, there was an earthquake, and the Lord Jesus poured out his blood for humanity. So Peter seems absolutely convinced that everything that the prophet Joel is prophesying here in the last days has already happened. In other words... We are living in the last days. Nothing more has to be done except to share the good news with this world. And the invitation goes out there, the call goes out that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we have this wonderful blessing of living in the age of the spirit, the age of the gospel. But don't forget, God's clock is ticking. You hear it? Tick, tick. The day of Christ's return is the next great event in world history. Today, people can call on the name of the Lord. Tomorrow, it may be too late. And this should shape the way in which we speak. It should shape the way in which we live. It should shape how we behave, how we communicate, how we live for Jesus today. It should alter everything that we do. So what happened here, Peter says, 
The Spirit's come, changes everything. But how? How did it happen? Verse 22 to 35. Let's read a few more words. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross." But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead you will not let the Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing What was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, and he was not abandoned to the realm of dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. See, the news and the arrest of, and the, and the news of the arrest, the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth was big news. Virtually every adult in Jerusalem had heard about it. Everybody is talking about it. But there are also sort of some rumors going on. Some people were saying that, that maybe the disciples had actually stolen the body. Maybe the whole thing has just been made up. Peter now tells them the truth. Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead. And the resurrection was proof that he was the Messiah. And what Peter does here is go on to give us four reasons, at least to the people he's speaking to, and therefore to us as well, four proofs of the resurrection. And Peter's first proof of the resurrection is Jesus himself. Jesus was a real person, And it's very clear that God's hand was upon him. Now, most of the people in that crowd had heard the stories. Some of them had even seen him heal the sick. Others even seen him raise the dead. He was a good man. He was a sinless man. A man who didn't deserve to die. But he was also a man who claimed to be God. And what happened on that cross is incredible. 
In fact, at face value, the crucifixion was a terrible crime. However, from another point of view, it was a wonderful victory. And that's what Peter really focuses in on, because death could not hold Jesus down. But note, Peter attaches great significance not just to the death and to the resurrection of Jesus, but also to the ascension of Jesus into heaven. In these verses, Peter doesn't go into really any details or into the specifics of either the cross or the empty tomb, except to say that these things were the direct will of God and predicted in Scripture. He focuses instead on the significance of the ascension. He wants the people listening to understand that Jesus is king. He wants them to know that Jesus has all authority. He is the one who is in complete control. In fact, he is the one who reigns on high. Jesus is alive. First proof, Jesus is alive of the resurrection. The second proof that Peter goes to is the prophecy of David. So Peter quotes um, in, chapter, in verses 25 to 28, and the, he picks this out of Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, and what it talks about, just to quote one of the verses, it talks about not leaving a soul among the dead or allowing the Holy One to rot in the grave. Now, it's very obvious that these verses are not talking about David. Everybody knows David's dead, David's been buried. In fact, the tomb is there for people to see. Instead, David is prophetically pointing to Jesus. Again, proof of the resurrection. He is the one who has victory over death. He is the one who reigns on high. Again, death cannot hold him. He has defeated death. So Peter says, another proof. Old Testament proof of the resurrection. The third proof that Peter goes to is the witnesses of the, the witness of the believers. After Jesus has rose from the dead, he appears to the followers. But the question we've got to ask ourselves, are these people trustworthy? Do, can we really rely on their testimony? After all, there are these rumors going around that actually the disciples may have stolen the body, that maybe they've made the whole thing up. But if you are to examine the facts you have to conclude that the words of the disciples are trustworthy. See, before, before the resurrection, the disciples are convinced it is all over. They are scared. They're hiding away. Quite, put quite simply, they don't expect to see Jesus again. He's dead. He's gone. This is not the behavior of people who are going to come up with some elaborate hoax. Never mind, stick to it for the next weeks, months, and years. In fact, they've got certainly nothing to gain from preaching a lie. After all, they're going to face imprisonment. They're going to face persecution, even death. No one would die for a lie. Instead, the truth of the resurrection was life-changing to them. When they met the risen Jesus... Everything changed in that moment. Listen, the miraculous change in these disciples is breathtaking. The only logical conclusion is that their witness is trustworthy and cannot be dismissed. The fourth proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the presence of the Holy Spirit. Again, if you follow Peter's logic here, for the Holy Spirit to come into the world, it must mean that God must have sent him. 
Again, remember Joel's prophecy that one day the Holy Spirit would come, but then even the words of Jesus who himself claimed that he would send the Holy Spirit. But if Jesus was dead, how could he send the Spirit? He had to be alive and he had to have ascended and be sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And to back up this statement, Peter again goes back into the Old Testament. This time he turns to Psalm 110 verse 1 where he quotes, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Peter's saying, look, there's so much proof here that Jesus Christ is alive. In fact, the Holy Spirit, the promised Spirit, is absolute proof that Jesus is alive, but that God is with us now. Finally, Peter's conclusion is both a declaration, but also an accusation. What Peter says next is a powerful statement, a bold statement. He says, you didn't just kill a man, you murdered the Messiah. You can only imagine the shock, the gasps, maybe just the stunned silence. Peter, what are you saying? Can you even say that? And Peter describes the cross not as a place of salvation, but as a place where the Jews have killed their own Messiah. They have committed the greatest crime in history And the man that they have hounded, the man that they have eventually killed, is now the anointed king. He is the one who reigns on high. He is the one who has all authority, all over all of creation. Wow. And by the time Peter is finished speaking, the crowd must have been quaking in their boots. Probably sandals. Who knows? And this could have gone one of two ways. Listen, they could have grabbed Peter, they could have taken him out the back somewhere, given him a good beating, maybe even killed him. But actually it went the other way. Their response that day was as a direct result of the preaching of God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit. Where word and spirit come together, we should expect powerful responses. So what happened? Spirit came. How did it happen? Jesus is alive. But why? There has to be a why. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brother, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them. He pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And Peter finishes 
this dramatic sermon with a powerful summary. But it was the Holy Spirit who took Peter's words and used it to convince and to convict the hearts of the listeners and look how they respond. This crowd doesn't ask, how do we fix this problem? They ask only one desperate question. Is there any hope? What can be done about this? And Peter's answer is simple. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. First, we must forsake sin and repent. Listen, sin demands repentance because sin is a violation of God's command. Mental assertion to wrongness of sin is just not sufficient. That's just merely regret. We demonstrate true repentance by a genuine hatred of sin with a spirit-empowered desire to never engage in that sin again and a spirit-driven determination to obey Jesus instead. But there's a second command that follows repentance, an outward symbol that is proof of faith, baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not just a ceremony, it is a public declaration of faith, a commitment to Jesus as the Christ. And baptism is this public statement, a very powerful sign that indicates us as a follower of Jesus. But also note that baptism is not the source of salvation. It's important. Baptism is not the source of salvation. Salvation comes through Christ alone, by faith alone. Baptism is simply an act of obedience to our Savior. But the best news of all is that this promise of salvation is for everyone who believes. This is not just for one nationality. It's not just for one little group of people. The gospel is for the hardened criminal as well as for the wealthy professional. It is for the retired grandparent as it is for the reckless teen. It's from the youngest to the oldest and for everybody in between. No one is excluded from the call. It goes out to all who will believe. In other words, this is for you. It's for you this morning. Turning and trusting are the two essential responses to Jesus at every point in the Christian life. But the gospel not only calls for a response, it also makes a promise. And there are many enormous blessings when you come and you put your trust and repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus. But the two that are repeated again and again by the apostles in Acts are these. Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The crowd that day were facing the weight of their sin. They were realizing that they were complicit in the murder of the Messiah, but also their eyes had been opened to the fact that the gift of the Spirit was a mark of God's new messianic age dawning. God's law would be written by His Spirit on their hearts. No wonder Peter pleads and urges them to respond. And thousands do. But the reality is that we are just as responsible as those who crucified Jesus. 
It was our sins that held him on the cross. Martin Luther puts it like this, we all carry his nails in our pockets. Listen, Jesus is Lord, Jesus Christ is King, but we have all rejected him. And you are just as responsible for the death of Jesus as for those who were actually there. He died for your sin and for mine. He is your substitute, but also your salvation. And when you realize what you've done to Jesus, how should you respond? Well, if you're not a Christian here today, you come to Jesus. You repent of your sin. You receive him and you declare that he is Lord of your life. But if you're a Christian, what you should not be doing is carry on sinning. Because when you sin, it's almost as if you're hammering the nails back into Jesus' hands and feet. Instead, your sin should cut you to your heart. I wonder when was the last time that happened. There is a seriousness to sin that perhaps you need to wake up to. You need to stop making excuses for not obeying God's word. You need to confront your sin. Only then will you appreciate his forgiveness and grace. But this is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray. Lord, send the connecting power of your spirit, Lord, on us this morning. Holy Spirit, come. Work in our hearts. You see, the Holy Spirit still empowers God's people to preach God's word. The Holy Spirit still heals the sick and demonstrates the power of God through signs and wonders. The Holy Spirit still brings people to repentance and faith and grows his church. And we need him to do all of these things in greater measures in our day, do we not? Have you ever been cut to the heart? Have you ever repented and accepted Jesus' forgiveness? Listen, some of you maybe have been going to church for a long time, but listen, are you actually saved? Do you know, are you living for him? Are you honoring him with your life? If not, today is the day to call on his name and be saved. Have you ever publicly declared your loyalty to him? Listen, are you living in the power of the Holy Spirit? You filled with his spirit? Many of you will have heard of a, a man called Smith Wigglesworth. He was a plumber. He actually was terrified of speaking in public, certainly in the early years. He preferred to serve in the background while his wife did most of the preaching. But after he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, everything changed. He became a mighty revivalist, healer. This is some of his story. He'd been away trying to spend time in God's presence for four days. He just wanted to spend time with God. And, and after he'd been there, he, he felt it was time he should go back home again. So he went to the vicarage near where he was staying. And he said to the vicar's wife, Mrs. Body, he says, I'm going away, but I have not received the tongues yet. He was specifically praying for the gift of tongues. She replied, it's not the tongues you need, but the baptism. He protested, I have 
received the baptism, but I would like you to pray and lay hands on me before I leave. She lay hands on him and then had to go out of the room. The fire fell. It was a wonderful time. He writes, as I was there with God alone, he bathed me in power. I was conscious of the cleansing of his precious blood and I cried out, clean, clean, clean. I was filled with joy and given a vision of, what I saw, of where I saw the Lord Jesus Christ. I saw the empty cross. I saw him exalted at the right hand of God the Father. I could speak no longer in English but began to praise him in another language as the Spirit of God gave me utterance. I knew that although I may have experienced anointings previously, that now at last I had received the real baptism in the Holy Spirit. As the, disciple, as the disciples had received on the day of Pentecost. However, when Wigglesworth told his wife that he had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and had spoken in tongues, the response from his wife was, I am as much baptized in the Holy Spirit as you are and I don't speak in tongues. I've been preaching for 20 years and you've sat beside me on the platform, but on Sunday you will preach for yourself and we will see what is in this. Up to that point, as I've said, Wigglesworth is terrified of anything up front. He's, he just mumbles over his words. He knew that he would have to win over his wife before he'd win the approval of the rest of the folks in the mission. The next Sunday, she sat on the back bench at the back of the hall when the time came for the message. Smith walked to the platform, and as he did, God gave him the passage from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, and he was. Smith preached fluently under the heavy anointing and didn't break down and weep as he had done on previous occasions. Smith said himself, Suddenly I felt I had a prophetic utterance which were flowing like a river by the power of the Holy Spirit. Polly, his wife, could not believe what she was hearing. She shuffled up and down the bench and she was heard whispering, that's not my Smith, that's not my Smith. Amazing, amazing, what has happened to this man? He was indeed different. First the secretary of the mission and then his own son George all wanted what he had and the meeting ended in holy laughter with many of the congregation rolling around on the floor. This was just the beginning of years that would follow that saw his ministry grow and develop. Listen, we, you, need to know that we are as equally qualified to receive more of God's spirit and to have the same hunger and passion for God. After this, everything changed for Wigglesworth. He only had to walk past people and they would come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and turn to Jesus for salvation. Increasingly, miracles and healings occurred. The glory of God fell wherever he prayed or preached. Blind eyes were open. Deaf ears could hear. Cancer was cured. And the wheelchair bound began to walk again. Besides all this, people were raised from the dead. This plumber traveled widely across the world. When crowds became too large for him to personally pray for every one of them, he began to do what he called wholesale healings, during which he would have everybody who needed healing lay hands on themselves, and then he would pray, and hundreds of people would be healed simultaneously. Wigglesworth had a
passion for God that was undeniable. But this is what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happened on the day of Pentecost has happened down through history and listen, can still happen today. Do you want this? When you pursue the giver and receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, everything changes. We need him.